Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to start a new season. We're going back to the 80s, brother, when Hulkamania was running wild. This season, we're covering the Mega Powers. Kyush, what is it about this storyline that made it among the most successful in wrestling history? It's kind of funny, because I'm not sure that people really realize, like, maybe they do, I don't know, but, like, this is probably the single biggest, best, most successful story ever told in wrestling. And there's really only, like, five story beats to cover in the whole thing. And maybe that's what captured the imagination so much, is, like, so much of it is anticipation for the next, like, little tidbit that you might get. So much of it is anticipation of, like, oh, man, we're finally going to get to see that match, but it won't be for another nine months. But, like, there's just something that struck such a nerve with people about this. It's incredible. Well, it's interesting because I feel like, a couple of years ago, I would have said they'll never tell a story like this again. But, man, we've been watching this Bloodline story play out for three years now. And they've had remarkable patience and discipline. Because I feel like you had people complaining it was that that was taking too long after about three months. It's so funny because there have been like six different stops along the way where people are like, all right, this part's taking too long. And then it turns out to be incredible. And they're like, okay, fine. Yeah. Like, first it was just the Jay part, and then they incorporated Jimmy, and then it's the Sammy part, and now it's Jay again, and now it's Jimmy again, and now it's the Civil War. We're really doing, like, a whole Marvel Cinematic Universe with just the bloodline. So, what I think made this work so well, I think it was the relatability of it that everybody could relate to the position that both Hogan and Randy and maybe even Elizabeth were in here. I think a really huge part about this and one that never gets talked about ever is there's a, in a towards the end of the Hulkamania run, there develops this core unlikability about the Hulk Hogan character. Hogan's kind of a scumbag here. But constantly, all throughout like the early 90s and late 80s, he's like... It's like he's planting seeds for a heel turn that never happens. Randy Savage has every right to be annoyed at what Hulk Hogan does at the end of this night. Now, should he go absolutely insane and accuse him of having lust in his eyes, as we're going to get into? Probably not. But, like, they're, neither one of these guys is wrong. Isn't and that's that, what makes this interesting. I always think the most compelling villains are the ones who on a core level are right, but they're a villain because they take things too far. Like maybe Thanos has a point about the universe being overpopulated, but it's a little extreme to kill half the beans in the universe as a solution. Yeah. Randy Savage loves his wife and is intimidated by being in Hogan's shadow. And so that moment where it seems like Hogan's going to take his wife from him, he loses his fucking mind. That doesn't mean he's a good person, because he's not. That's a shitty thing to do, and he's horribly overprotective of Elizabeth. But haven't you ever been in a place where you felt insecure like that? Anybody can feel that. Yeah. So we're coming out of WrestleMania 4, where Randy Savage won the WWF Championship Tournament by beating Ted DiBiase in the finals. And that match all looked lost for the Macho Man, and Elizabeth ran backstage and returned moments later with Hulk Hogan, who proceeded to hit DiBiase with a chair behind the referee's back. That allowed Savage to hit the flying elbow 
and pinned DiBiase to win the title. And thus, the Mega Powers were formed. But what a beginning to this, right? Like, right off the bat, Savage can't get it done on his own. No. And he's the champion, but he's in Hogan's shadow. The only reason he's even in the title match is because Hogan gets disqualified halfway through the tournament. And then uh, Miss Elizabeth, knowing that Savage can't do it on his own, goes and gets Hulk Hogan. Yeah, that had to... Wouldn't that just eat at you that your own wife didn't believe in you? They're just laying the seeds. That WrestleMania did disappoint in business. I think it's kind of a combination of factors. The tournament wasn't a big draw. The big match they were promoting was Hogan versus Andre, which, of course, they'd just done on free TV in January. And everyone under the sun, 30 million people watched that match. So everybody had seen it. And Jim Crockett ran the Clash of the Champions on free TV the same night. And that did a monster rating, like 5.0 or something on cable for Sting versus Flair. It's also pretty clear coming into that, if you were a person watching at the time, that they're moving away from Hogan. And if, like, you're a big Hogan person, maybe that's just not something you're interested in. Like, new generations rarely draw right at the start. And it's just like, are you going to pay to watch WrestleMania or watch the much better free wrestling show on TBS instead? Exactly. I don't need to watch the champions shits on WrestleMania four. It's so much better. Also WrestleMania four, one of the shittiest, shittiest, shittiest nights of wrestling anyone has ever put on. (laughs) There's a reason we're not starting there. Jesus Christ. What a terrible show. We had to endure this awful show. I can only push Q so far with the 80s wrestling. It's so funny. I don't think that there are a lot of people out there who were still with us at that time who are listening to us now. That was like six years ago. But like in in the infancy of this podcast, we decided, oh, we're going to start WrestleMania from scratch and SummerSlam from scratch. So we watched all this 80s shit and it fucking sucked. And we watched it in a vacuum. So, like, literally, we would just be watching it, all right, it's the next year, still sucks. Next year, still sucks. And the Summer Slams were so hard to get through that we almost quit the podcast. And we just like, this is not fun. Thank God SummerSlam 92 is what it was. I think it saved the show. Saved the company, saved our show, saved our friendship. So, coming out of WrestleMania, Savage is the WWF champion. The Honky Tonk Man is the Intercontinental Champion and has been for nearly a year. Um, Demolition are the Tag Team Champions after beating Strike Force at WrestleMania. Sherry Martell is the Women's Champion, and the Jumpin' Bomb Angels are the Women's Tag Team Champions. Those belts will be deactivated uh, somewhere in here. They're going to disappear. That's a shame because the Jumping Bomb Angels are fucking oh, amazing. I- they actually have good women's talent here with Sherry, with Rocket Robin, with the Jumpin' Bomb Angels, but they just aren't interested in women's wrestling at this time. And until, I don't know, 2011, they never are. Yeah. So something kind of crazy. I was looking at, got a shout out, historyofthewwe.com is an unbelievable site that's an incredible resource. Looking through the results... They took three weeks off from touring after WrestleMania. They shot their TV right after WrestleMania, and then they sent everybody home for a couple weeks. That's a great idea. I don't know when it stopped, but they, like, 
these guys needed a break, and that was very good. It's incredible to me that they don't do that. I know now, like, the night after WrestleMania is such, like, a big deal for setting up storylines because that's the only time that your audience is actually watching your product. So I guess I get it. But the idea of just doing, like, the season finale and then taking a break well, is just a good a couple, idea. A couple weeks of highlights highlight shows and then mix in interviews with the guys about what they're doing and what they're going to be doing when they come back. I think it would, it would be great if they did that twice a year. Like, do that after WrestleMania and do that after Survivor Series. Take a little time off. I'm just I'm imagining the idea of, like, Bret Hart winning the main event to WrestleMania and being like, what are you going to do now, Bret? I'm going to Disney World. Yeah. Um... On Superstars on April 23rd, they aired the angle where Jake Roberts' wife, Cheryl, was in the front row and Rick Rude tried to seduce her. This Rude-Jake feud is one of my absolute favorites of this era. I love this. These guys had such great natural chemistry together. This doesn't get talked about enough a lot these days, though at the time it was considered to be like a revolutionary storyline. Because, like, WWE didn't do, like, hot heat storylines like this where like i you're fuck trying to fuck my wife i'm gonna kill yeah. you you bastard Jake <laughs> has so much fire like rick rude is hitting you know there's this very beautiful woman in the front row so naturally rick rude's trying to get with her and he asks her like she's like no she he's you know he asks her am i the most you know handsome man you've ever seen she says no my husband is he's like oh yeah who's your husband What's he do? She goes, he's a wrestler. He's like, oh, yeah, who, what's his name? Jake Roberts. And then he's like, oh, shit. <laughs> the fact that the whole thing is touched off by him just accidentally fucking yeah. hitting on the wrong woman. But he doesn't let it go. He oh, starts of course. Wearing, starts wearing tights with her face on the crotch. When he reveals that oh, in this God. match, it is the most incredible moment. Um. One big piece of news from around this time, Ricky Steamboat left the company. Um, he had been unhappy with losing the Intercontinental title the previous year. It was pretty clear there were no real plans for him going forward. So he takes off, ends up going back to Crockett and having a great run, run with Ric Flair and getting the world title the year after this. I think you'd have to say that he definitely made the right choice there yeah. for the twilight of his career. And it definitely would have continued to be good, except that like his body starts to break down and then this marriage breaks down and then it, his life kind of just falls into shambles around like 93. At the Superstars taping on April 21st, Hogan beat Boris Zukov in a rare TV match that would air uh, during May Sweeps, one of the few times Hogan would wrestle on Superstars. Uh, last TV appearance until the summer as he went away to film No Holds Barred here, which leaves Savage to carry the company. It is so funny that, like, after five years of being arguably the biggest draw in wrestling history, he really does do a follow that, brother, to everyone else in the company, right? He's just like, oh, Warrior, Savage, you guys want some of this? Cool. I'm going to go make some movies, dickheads. So to give you an idea of how things were set up, they were running in three sets of house shows at this point. The A shows, which would go to the biggest cities, and the A shows are in New York, Detroit, Atlanta, L.A. Those are headlined by Savage versus DiBiase. The B shows are headlined by Honky Tonk Man versus Brutus Beefcake for the Intercontinental title. And the C shows, which are in, like, 
high school gyms and armories are headlined by Junkyard Dog versus Ron Bass. Junkyard Dog versus Ron Bass. <laughs> yeah, that's what you, if you went to, uh, you know, I can't, I can't think of an arena that size off the top of my head, but we're talking literally high school gyms that run in with that, those shows. Yep. Splitting the crews like that up allowed them to run about 60 shows per month, average of two per day. If the average gate on those shows was 50 grand, which I don't know, conservative, aggressive, hard to tell, but that would have them grossing over $3 million a month from their house shows, which makes the house shows a significantly bigger source of revenue than pay-per-view is at this point. It's just funny to think of how dis- different that business model is. Like the business models changed like five times since then, but the idea that live events were the entire business and the only business and the only thing that mattered. In the 90s, it becomes a pay-per-view company once they start running the pay-per-views every month. And now, of course, we know it's content, it's rights fees where they make their money. Yeah, they make their money before they actually do anything, and they don't need to do anything. (laughs) Got that guaranteed contract, brother. Uh, April 25th, they ran Madison Square Garden with Savage versus DiBiase in the main event. Savage lost by countout after Virgil grabbed his leg as he was getting back in the ring. They drew 17,000 for that one. Really strong number. Not quite a sellout, but garden sellouts are rare. Contrary to what people might think, they did not sell the garden out every month in the 80s. Yeah, genuinely impressive. April 22nd, they taped Saturday night's main event in Springfield, Massachusetts to air uh, Saturday, April the 30th. On that show, Jim Duggan beat Hercules by DQ after interference from Bobby Heenan and Andre the Giant. Brutus Beefcake beat Dangerous Danny Davis. Randy Savage beat the one-man gang to retain the WWF title. Demolition beat the British Bulldogs by DQ to retain the tag titles. Ted DiBiase beat Don Morocco, and Rick Rude beat Coco Beware. Not one of the strongest Saturday Night's main events. God, no. Though, I mean, towards the end, they really don't get a home run on Saturday Night's main event for, like, a good couple years, it seems like. This was the first Saturday Night's main event ever to not have Hulk Hogan on it. He had wrestled on almost all of the previous ones, Maybe all of them. And if there was one or two he didn't wrestle on, he at least had an interview. Yep. Uh, they came back to Madison Square Garden on May 27th, drew 16,000. Savage beat DiBiase by DQ after Virgil interfered. Impressive how they're holding up without Hogan here. And I mean, like, this is one of those things, if you build a strong enough mid-card, they should be able to survive without the top star, at least for a little bit. Um, there's not a lot of stuff underneath this, though. Like, they're really shooting with, like, some of their good stuff. And it's going to quickly become apparent that, like, ooh, we didn't build, like, a ton of infrastructure under Hogan. Uh-oh. Uh, back at the Garden on June 25th, a near sellout of over 18,000 for Savage beating DiBiase in a steel cage match. Hell of a main event. Yes, that match a billion times better than the WrestleMania match. Oh, yeah. Um, last time they ran the garden before SummerSlam was July 25th. This was a cool down show. They didn't book Savage on this one. They, I assume, didn't want to overexpose him. 
Main event was Andre versus Jim Duggan in a lumberjack match. They drew 11,000. Honestly, shocked they got over 10K for that. Like, maybe, like, at this point you're going to Andre matches because you're like, he's going to hang it up pretty soon. I got to see him before he's done. I don't know if people really realized that at the time, but, like, that's what's happening. One notable thing from this show, the Madison Square Garden debut of the Rockers. They lost to the Rougeos. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Rockers had had a very brief run with the company back in 86 or 87. They got fired after a week or two. And now they're back on, like, triple secret probation. It's so I don't think anybody has ever gotten fired as unceremoniously and then come back and become a huge star later than Shawn Michaels did. I was going to say the Freebirds got fired in very similar fashion, but they were never welcomed back. Yes. Andre literally threw their bags out of the arena. That's the funniest thing to me. Andre did not stop at just throwing them out of the locker room, which has happened to tons of guys. He took their bags, patiently stood up, walked all the way to, like, the parking lot, and (laughs) chucked them into the parking garage. And then they went to Vince, and they were like, hey, Andre says we're fired. And Vince's like, well, Andre says so, yeah. That's the boss, fellas. Bye. (laughs) Uh, they ran a huge show at Milwaukee County Stadium on July 31st that was much better than SummerSlam. Uh, this was WrestleFest, which this wasn't broadcast, but they taped it and released it on Coliseum Video. Um, drew over 25,000 people in Milwaukee for a double main event. Savage versus DiBiase for the title and Hogan versus Andre in a cage. God, wish we could have gotten that here at SummerSlam. Yeah, that's... That's the thing about this SummerSlam show is that, like, I think they think that this is a, the best that they can do. But no, this is a one-match show that everything else is garbage. Any other hot match of any sort would have been so welcome. So about a month before this, and I got to shout something out. I think I've t- I don't know if I've talked about this on air before, but some guy, some incredible genius has gone through all the syndicated TV shows from the 80s and clipped them together into these, like, 90-minute YouTube videos that show what happened each month. And it has, like, all the good matches and all the big angles from each month. So it's, like, WWF Wrestling, July 1990. WWF Wrestling, May 1986. He did 10 years' worth of this. It's incredible, and it's the only way you can watch this and understand what was happening because so many of these shows are not available and who would have time to watch them all here. You just get the stuff that matters. That's so cool. And I've watched some of it too. And it's, it's literally like such an unbelievable help because context is the enemy on these shows. Like you can get a little bit and you can watch Saturday night's main event and you can kind of read up on what was going on, but you can't, it's not the same as watching like some of the other seasons we've done where you can literally put yourselves in the shoes of the people who are watching at the time. That's virtually impossible with these. Yeah. I mean, at this point, they had so much, I'm trying to think of how much TV they had. They had superstars. They had primetime wrestling. They had wrestling challenge. And they definitely, I think they had a C show too. I think they had all American wrestling may have still been going at this point. Yeesh. A lot of TV every week. Yeah. I mean, Not as much as they have now, but close. So they had Savage get jumped by DiBiase and Andre on Superstars to start the build for this. Savage challenged Andre and DiBiase to a tag team match at SummerSlam. Heenan 
agreed on the stipulation that he would get to pick the referee, and he picked Hogan's arch nemesis, Jesse the Body Ventura. This is so perfect, because, like, no one has more publicly hated Hulk Hogan throughout all of the 80s than Jesse Ventura. And I don't know if they're hoping that maybe they can get that Jesse Hogan match in the ring, or if they're just doing it because it adds intrigue. And Jesse is the second or third biggest after Hogan. He might be the second biggest star in this company at this point. This is after predator and the running man have come out. Jesse's a movie star at this point. Like literally like Jesse, Jesse's quoting all of his predator lines in this, which seems like it's just being full of himself, but he's just been in one of the most iconic movies of all time as one of like the third biggest star in it. So like, yeah, he can do that. Uh, there's a very strong implication that DiBiase has bribed Jesse. Well, literally, there's a segment where he just starts <laughs> yeah. putting money in his shirt, and Jesse does a promo on the show where he's like, yeah, and you gave me a bunch of money, and I was like, all right, because I'm not an idiot. I'm going to take the money. Of course, Savage's partner was revealed to be Hulk Hogan. Um, Hogan... Proceeded to cut a very weird promo where he said that Elizabeth was now both of their manager. He said some weird stuff about how Savage should have known that being the world champion, his phone would be tapped and that when he called Hogan, word would get out. But he forgave him for that. What the fuck are you (laughs) talking about? Man, these Hogan promos are wild. I don't think I think people kind of sleep on just how crazy the stuff Hogan says in these promos are. I'll be clear. The Warriors promos are absolutely crazy, but the best thing that Warrior did for Hogan was he really covered up a lot for how fucking coked up Hogan was at this point, just doing whatever random shit popped into his head. Because he's cutting... His promos go for, all right, kids, say your prayers and eat your vitamins, brother, to I will take you and I will drop you down to the furthest abyss and then you got to climb on my back and grab the 34-inch pythons, Donald Trump, and I'll pull you to safety. What the fuck are you talking about? So we're set for the Mega Powers versus the Mega Bucks. They'll be the Mega Cucks after tonight. The Mega Cucks. The hook here is that Savage and Hogan have a secret weapon, which they've explicitly said is Elizabeth stripping down to a skimpy, teeny-weeny, itsy-bitsy bikini. Now, I, I like better the idea that they would be like, I, we have a secret weapon, and it's Elizabeth, and then people be like, what the fuck are you talking about? She's never done anything. But to be explicitly be like, hey, <laughs> buy this pay-per-view so you can see her ass. That's pretty fucked up, right? He would think it would have sold better. Well, that's the thing. Is that, like, I think even the kind of horny people who would do that were wise to this. Like, I don't think they're really going to do that. No, the funny thing is... They sold posters of Elizabeth in a bikini, but for whatever reason, when they got to this, I don't know if maybe maybe Elizabeth was uncomfortable with it and Randy kind of took the hit for it. But the story has always been that Savage, you know, got really jealous at the last second and wouldn't let her do it. Well, I don't think he's jealous of like her showing her body off to the audience. I think maybe he was jealous of the fact that for the story to progress, Hulk Hogan has to grab a huge chunk of that ass. Yeah. 
they're also promoting Honky Tonk Man versus Beefcake for the Intercontinental title, but Beefcake has been storyline injured by Ron Bass and won't be able to do the match. So we're going to get Honky Tonk Man against a mystery opponent instead. This is the greatest replacement match in wrestling history. Because we could have had to sit through 15 minutes of Beefcake versus Honky Tonk Man. We got that at WrestleMania. I wasn't doing that again. What we get instead is one of the most iconic minutes in wrestling history. Uh, Plus, we've got Demolition defending the tag titles against the Hart Foundation. Jimmy Hart, who's been fired by the Hart Foundation, will be in Demolition's corner along with Mr. Fuji. Yeah. The other big thing they're promoting is Brother Love interviewing a mystery person. Now... Obviously, neither one of us were watching this show as I was three. And were you born yet? Nope. Okay. (laughs) Negative one. But if you had to have assumed at the time who this would have been, aside from Shawn Michaels, who would you have thought that it was? Ric Flair, because that's who it was supposed to be. I I would guess so, because who it turns out to be is maybe the most disappointing (laughs) thing in the history of the world. Like, they're building this up. It's very special. It's someone who's never been in Madison Square Garden before. And so you realize that, like, they backed themselves in this corner, and Vince had to have been, like, searching feverishly, like, who haven't I booked in Madison Square Garden before? Fuck. Duggan just wrestled in the garden a month before this. Yes, I'm guessing that he was just like, ah, fine. We'll We'll just ignore it. It's fine. Apparently, according to Something to Wrestle, they also wanted to get Jessica Hahn, who I believe was the mistress of the televangelist Jim Baker, which also would have sucked. Yeah, that doesn't work. (sighs) The amount of folk, the amount of brother love. Every single show they had to do a brother love segment. I don't, I don't, this feels like the ultimate example of something that popped the boys getting written into the show. Like Vince loved when Bruce would do his Southern preacher voice and they ended up talking themselves into the idea that this should be a character. Well, the other thing too, is that like brother love was like a rib on Bruce Pritchard because Making him do a character that was super over the top and also t- a two-faced hypocrite piece of shit scumbag <laughs> is just what everybody thought about Bruce Pritchard. And he had to wear this ridiculous face paint and suit as he's running around backstage doing his job. It's just, I don't know why it always had to be. There's like 50 managers here. Why can't Slick do some of this I feel shit? Like it's crazy. I would like Brother Love being a manager would have been good, but he really never manages anybody. Is it weird that The Undertaker for two weeks in 1990? Is it weird that like Jimmy Hart can't get a fucking promo segment like this? Like, I don't. Jimmy Hart or Slick, Jesse would be great. I mean, they have Yo. the bodies. They had the body shop with Jesse for a while. I think by this point, the problem was Jesse didn't want to go on the road anymore. That's fair. Yeah. Um, So it's the first ever SummerSlam, but it definitely feels like they don't want to give too much stuff away. You know, we've got Rick Rude and Jake Roberts in a super hot feud, but they're both wrestling other people. They're still in the era where they want to protect the house shows. They feel like if they do Jake versus Rude here... Nobody's going to buy house show tickets to see that match. 
But you also got to remember, like, there weren't a lot of people who even could buy pay-per-views at this point. So, like, it's about it's an audience of about 10 million households is the estimate. So realistically, like, if you feel like you could get that same money on the road, it just makes more sense to get it on the road. And as I said, you know, we'll talk about, you know, what they gross from these pay-per-views, but it really pales in comparison to, you know, what they're doing with the house show business with the sheer number of shows they're running. Yep. So a major story that I didn't want to put in the lightning round Bruiser Brody was murdered in Puerto Rico um, a few weeks before this pay-per-view. Just one of the, it was still one of the most shocking and you know, tragic incidents in wrestling history as he was stabbed to death in Puerto Rico by uh, Invader One, I believe. Yeah. Um, maybe someday we'll do, like, on the Patreon, like, a true crime edition of the Lawcast where we, like, go deep Dude, in depth. I know I'm all like about that. that. I love me some Dark Side of the Rang. Yeah, like, you know literally every fucking thing about the Benoit murders that there is to, to know. <laughs> like, you went on such a deep goddamn dive into that whole that situation. Was that was a dark time in my life. Literally, he would hit me with, like, texts, like, every day, and it would just be like, hey, I learned a new thing. Turns out he strangled the guy while he was taking a shit. And I'd be like, man, this sucks. <laughs> I just picture you, like, sitting there on your lunch break, eating lunch, like, glancing at your phone, like, oh, text from Steve. Oh, God. Yeah, he's saying he's a little worst thing imaginable. God, he sent it at three in the morning. What the fuck is he doing? I, I specifically remember I was at dinner with my wife on a date, and I looked at my phone, and I think that was when you were like, yeah, he rolled up Nancy in a rug and tried to hide her in a closet and then made dinner for the kid. And I was like, what the fuck? That story was much more – that story got much more fucked up the more I learned about it. It was much worse than I initially thought. But I've done the same thing. I've done a similar deep dive on the Bruiser Brody thing. So I know yeah. way too much about that whole thing. So, I mean, Dutch Mantel alone has talked about this in so many shoots. I got a bunch of people. Uh, who else? Tony Atlas was there too, right? There were a ton of people there. Yeah. A ton of people. And like what he's talked about it. They're literally just all standing in a room. Guy walks in, stabs him, walks out. A bunch of people like are very carefully like, I knew about this and I'm not paying attention. No one can say I had any part in it. Whereas all like the American wrestlers are like, what the fuck just happened? What? Yeah. Dutch Mantel talks about like fleeing to the airport because he wasn't sure he'd be able to get out of Puerto Rico if he didn't leave at that second. All right. Now that we're through that, are you ready for our first ever 80s lightning round? Coked up edition. Oh, yeah. The fact that I managed to dig up observers from and torches from 1988 was a real feat. When he truly was just like a man in his mom's basement on like a rudimentary computer sending out newsletters on actual paper. The torches are literally sca- like PDF scans of the actual paper newsletter. They yeah. didn't even digitize. Jim Crockett presented the first ever Great American Bash pay-per-view. Ric Flair retained the NWA title over Lex Luger when the match was stopped due to a trickle of blood coming from Luger's forehead. Hmm. <laughs> Turned out Luger had never done a blade job before. Just the idea of him being like, oh man, I am totally bleeding just like Flair right now. I am so awesome. And it's just literally the most pathetic little bit of blood. Like, one drop of blood came out, and they stopped the match. 
There is one case where that actually worked, and unfortunately, it was in during Shibata's like I'm gonna headbutt everyone period before the brain damage, obviously. But he headbutts this guy, and then like after the win, one lonely trickle of blood goes down his face and like past his nose, and he doesn't even flinch as it goes down. And it's maybe the most badass image anyone's ever done ever in the history of wrestling. Somewhat ruined by the brain damage he suffered later doing the same thing. <laughs> Crockett was experiencing serious cash flow issues. They took out a hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of loans just to make payroll and pay their TV bill. Not great. No. Not what we're looking for. Governor Bob Casey of Pennsylvania vetoed a bill to deregulate pro wrestling in the state. Good for him. Even though, I mean... Probably should have, right? I don't know. Athletic commissions were shady and corrupt, but I don't like what? I don't like the Wild West we got since then. That is the thing, is that, like, at least then, if somebody knocked on Vince's door and said, hey, you have to let me see if these guys are all drugged up and pilled up and dying, he'd have to be like, well, all right, I guess I have to let you in. Now he doesn't. He just doesn't. Robert Gibson quit Crockett after only getting an $1,100 payoff for a week of Great American Bass shows. $1,100 for a week of shows. Instead, like, those, are sta- those are stadium shows. They're just drawing 20,000 people. And he's drawn a good amount of those monies. DAWA booked the Metrodome for a show in November. Surely that won't end in a complete disaster. I don't think that show happened. The fucking temerity of those yeah. idiots to like be like, we can run the Metrodome in 1988. No one watches your product, you fools. Iceman King Parsons was offered a spot on a tour of South Africa and said, hell no. In case you don't know, Iceman Parsons was a black man. Yeah. And what was going on in South Africa during this time, Steve? Apartheid. Yeah, not great. <laughs> Gene Okerlund quit and returned to the WWF. Gene Okerlund quit for a day and ended up coming back the next day. This was apparently something that he did about once per year. That's pretty funny to me that, like, every so often Gene would be like, you know what, fuck this place. And then, like, a day he'd go back, talk to his wife, and be like, okay, I actually need a job. All right, well... He can only really do his job in one company in the entire world. So, like Bruce Pritchard described it as quitting into the bar, that you're just at the bar that night. And you're just like, yeah, I'm done. I'm, I can't do this shit anymore. I'm out of here. This round's on me. And then you just show up the next day to work. That sounds about right. I've done that dozens of times. Dustin Rhodes debuted in Florida Championship Wrestling at the age of 18. Yes. Dustin Rhodes debuted all the way back in 1988, and he's still wrestling today. He's going to be a major TV star like five years from now when he's 23, and he's still on our TVs today. Yep. Billy Jack Haynes' Oregon Wrestling Federation folded. Yeah, that's a bummer. Bam Bam Bigelow, no longer wanting to be a dancing saxophone man, left the WWF for the NWA. What do you mean he didn't want to be a dancing saxophone man? What else is he supposed to be, this giant killer asshole from New Jersey? 
He Bam Bam also won a fishing contest in New Jersey, <laughs> the prize of which was forty five hundred dollars. That's almost ten grand today. This is a big contest. What the fuck? I love hearing these stories about wrestlers who we for almost forget have lives outside of wrestling. Yeah. And Bam Bam apparently being like Sid Helen with the softball. Fisherman. Apparently, yeah. Like he would always like leave early from the arenas to be like, yo, I'm going to go do some fishing at the local lake for a head on to the next town. Central States Wrestling drew a crowd of 48 people for a show in DeSoto, Kansas. In their defense, that's probably the entire population of that town. Literally, the name of your promotion is Central States Wrestling. You failed from the start, bro. Like, that's why are you promoting there? That's not the place. I think that's Harley Race's territory, although he may have sold his interest when he went to work for Vince. But yeah, but he just went back and forth between like St. Louis and Kansas City. He's not running like dirt towns. Crockett accidentally booked the wrong building in Seattle, booking the 7,500-seat Seattle Center Arena instead of the 16,000-seat Seattle Center Coliseum. They ended up having to turn thousands of fans away as a result. Damn. Terry Taylor debuted as Scary Terry Taylor. You might think that's a bad gimmick, but then he's going to become the Red Rooster. As much as we hate Terry Taylor, has anyone ever been handed such a long string of just fucking garbage like this? No, but no one's ever deserved it more. That's the thing. It's like, thank God he didn't get a good gimmick and actually get over. Can you imagine this man with actual power? Thank God he never had any. Prior to a show in Detroit, Crockett hosted a Meet the Wrestlers event that only Jimmy Garvin and Brad Armstrong showed up to. A similar party in Las Vegas only drew about 20 people. 20 I've, th- people. I've, I've, I've thrown more successful parties than that. I want to be clear. If someone said, hey, you want to come over to my house and meet Jimmy Garvin? I'd be like, fuck yeah, that's going to be the wildest <laughs> party awesome. I've ever been to. Oh, Meltzer referred to this show as Summer Scam, which is apt. Damn, he was so much shadier back in the day. Owen Hart made his WWF debut as the Blue Blazer. It It's difficult to... Th- the Blue Blazer at one point was just a lame thing that happened instead of uh, what we think of now, which is the doom clock hitting midnight on his career in life. And finally, the hammer. Meltzer reported that Hogan wanted to have a real fight against Mike Tyson at WrestleMania 6 and thought he would win. I don't know if I buy that. I don't think Hogan really believed that, though apparently when Mike Tyson was asked, he said he was so scared of Hulk Hogan that he thought Hulk Hogan would kill him. Hogan is a foot taller. But like Tyson thought wrestling was real. So he he watched like Thunderlips and Rocky Three and was like, I'm not fucking with Hulk Hogan. That dude's a badass. Okay. Hypothetically. If it's pro wrestling rules and Tyson has to wear boxing gloves and Hogan doesn't, is there some chance Hogan could get Tyson on the mat and pin him? I think there is. 
I mean, yes, obviously. Like, he obviously needs to avoid getting knocked out, which would happen if this lasted. If they're on their feet for more than about 30 seconds, Hogan's going to sleep. But if he can immediately get up on Tyson and grapple him, he could. he's so big and strong and tall and heavy, he could probably leverage him down to the mat. And we know Japan Hogan could come out. I want to be totally clear about this. If you're suggesting that they do, like, the Ali versus Anoki yeah. thing, except he's allowed to stand up, Hulk Hogan would absolutely beat Mike Tyson. Because, as you said, Mike Tyson's only good at punching. And not even really that good at avoiding being punched himself. He's really just good at the punching. Uh, has no defense for any of that stuff. Is smaller than Hogan, et cetera, et cetera. And Hogan was trained by real shooters. We don't really think about that with him. Yeah. But there's also a reason... There's a to be a guy like Hulk Hogan, you also always have to be on the defense for people like going into business for themselves because a win over Hulk Hogan, no matter how you do it, would make your career, right? Like I think he could handle himself. I mean, there was talk of doing something with Hogan and Tyson. It it got I mean, Tyson's involvement in the WWE got derailed by the fact that he got knocked out um by uh, Buster Douglas at the beginning of 1990. Like I said, WrestleMania six before I would have been, they would have been talking about WrestleMania five at this time. Well, let's be clear. If they really did something with Hogan and Tyson at that time, they were Huge trying to business. push Hogan as a baby face though. Like, I don't, I don't think that Tyson, Tyson, not, Ty, Tyson's a heel. He's not, he's not the huge. He's not the heel. He would become. Yeah. Like, no, I think that it's not, there's not a one-on-one match Tyson versus Hogan. Cause <laughs> You would have teamed him up. Yeah, exactly. It's just like the new age Mr. T. That's all that is. So to get into the show, it's Monday, April the 29th, 1988. August the 29th, not April, but it is a Monday. They ran the show on a Monday and not Labor Day. They really don't give a shit about if anyone wants to see this at all. So strange. I wonder. Here's. I mean, I couldn't think, really figure out if they, there, there's probably some website that would tell me what, if something was going on at the Garden this day. But it's not basketball or hockey season, so it's not like there's a Knicks or Rangers game on Sunday. I don't know why they booked a Monday. They might have had to. There must have been a Billy Joel concert or I something. I was literally on about to say Billy Joel concert. Yeah, <laughs> there's always a Billy Joel concert. Yep. We're. In Madison Square Garden, in the heart of Midtown Manhattan, the world's most famous arena, it's sold out. They're hanging from the rafters, close to twenty thousand in attendance. Plus, I think they—I believe they also sold out the Felt Forum next door, so another couple thousand people to watch a closed circuit broadcast. Nice. Uh. $418,000 gate, so average ticket price is just over 20 bucks. It's not bad. It'd be about, it's about 60 today. Yeah. Which doesn't, it doesn't feel that out of line for like your average, pay, I mean, pay-per-view costs have gone up. I'm sure your average ticket for WWE pay-per-view is more than 60 today. Right. Uh, the show... Oh, the the $418,000 gate was the fifth largest in American wrestling history to this point. Well, that depends on who you ask, but yeah, probably. The show did a 4.0 buy rate for about 400,000 buys. Uh, The internal goal was reportedly a 6.0. 
that seems crazy. WrestleMania had only done 485,000 buys back in April. Although, I don't know if there was closed circuit for this. This may have only been on pay-per-view. That WrestleMania still had a lot of closed circuit business. It is worth mentioning, too. That, like They seem to be of the opinion that like as much as business had been liquid hot to an extent that business never had been ever before in wrestling, they seem to genuinely be of the opinion that it was just going to keep going forever. Which yeah. is... Pretty crazy if you think about it. Uh, the company gross would have been about 2.5 million. It's a modest success. It's not huge, but it's decent. Yeah. On commentary, Gorilla Monsoon and superstar Billy Graham. Billy Graham, for being one of the best promos of all time, absolutely sucked as an announcer. Two things about Billy Graham as an announcer. Number one... Uh, when you weren't looking directly at him, was it so clear that Dusty Rhodes had stolen his whole patter from Billy Graham? Oh, yeah. Because literally, if you're not, if you don't think in your head that it's Billy Graham, it's just Dusty Rhodes. Yeah, he got, Dusty got his whole rap from Billy Graham. The whole time, it's just like, oh, baby, I can't believe he's going to get off the top rope like that. Oh, my God. And the second thing is, at the end of every single match, he's just like, yeah, go on back to the back and sort it out in the showers. Find him back there in the locker room and beat his ass. Like, Billy, we don't do that. He's not good. Not good at all. You can't do that, Billy. Uh, the opening package uses what will later become the Royal Rumble theme. It mixes shots of people doing summer activities with the matches for tonight's card. I love that it's a bunch of people doing summer activities, a bunch of big stars doing impressive things, and then occasionally just cuts to Virgil counting some money. <laughs> and that's I, think, whole... I think Virgil is the first thing we see when they start playing stuff, which is hilarious. It's just like Virgil just counting his money. Yep. Got that fuck money. <laughs> oh, man, he must have crushed the Olive Garden after this show. Oh, you know he did. Oh, got those unlimited breadsticks, that salad bar. <laughs> Uh, we cut into the arena, which is packed to the rafters. It's well lit. This is the first time they'd ever used the actual TV light rig at the garden, and they actually lit the place up. It makes the place look so much more impressive. Yeah. Like the garden, I mean, they, you forget the garden's huge, guys. <laughs> it's enormous. It's cavernous in there. That's also uh, one of the only times I've ever seen the garden shot from this side. Like normally they shoot it like yeah. straight onto the entryway, but like Yeah, they weren't they weren't shooting into the void here. What how do you feel about that? I love shooting into the void. It just makes the show different. Like it looks different. Yeah. The fans being able to like reach down towards the wrestlers is really cool. I love it. I don't that. love it when like in this era there's no set and it's just the tunnel and the exit sign. I don't think that looks impressive, but I like it when they have an actual set set up. I think that looks cool. Oh yeah, like the doors that they would have, like yeah. very cool. But here, yeah, they're just shooting. They're shooting from the opposite sides. So they're shooting into the crowd here. Uh, Gorilla Monsoon and Billy Graham welcome us to the show. And then we've got our opening match. We've got um, the British Bulldogs against the Fabulous Rougeos. And I always kind of pop for this, knowing what happens between these teams a few weeks after this show. This is one of the things where Billy Graham's like, yeah, go sort it out in the locker room, boys. Oh, and I'm boy, like, they shut sure up, did. Billy, they do that. <laughs> so a dispute over ribs played by the Bulldogs escalated to the point where Jacques 
hit dynamite with a fist loaded up with a roll of quarters and knocked him the fuck out. Knocked out his front teeth. He hit him so hard. I don't remember which shoot interview this is from of like somebody, but like somebody was like in catering with uh, Jacques Rougeau and he's just literally like standing there like working himself like I'm going to fucking do it because Dynamite had been torturing him. Let's be clear. Dynamite Kid is a sociopath. That's an asshole. And yeah, this has been going for months and months. And and they had had, they had had a fight before this where I think Rougeau's had played a rib on the Bulldogs and Dynamite attacked Jacques and Raymond. And yeah, apparently, apparently Jacques was practicing in his hotel, practiced this punch in his hotel room for weeks leading up to this. Just and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then here comes Dynamite. He's holding two cups of coffee in both hands. And Jacques is like, it's time. He walks up to him and just lays Dynamite out with the most perfect right hook in human yeah. existence. It sounds like the way I've heard the punch that Brett hit Vince with backstage in Montreal. Just, just like the perfect right hand. Down goes Dynamite. Uh, that incident led Vince to declare a new zero-tolerance policy for ribs or retribution. He just like gets all the boys together and he's like, this needs to stop now. Because he couldn't say shit to the Rougeaus because Dynamite would literally like break the windows out of their rental cars yeah. and like like steal their clothes, cut their clothes up. Like that's not a prank. That's not a joke. Like a, a, a rib is like the stuff Owen Hart would do where he would call your hotel room pretending to be a confused old man. Stuff like that. That's funny. That's a rib. That's a joke. Yeah, a guy, like, gets out of the car to take a leak on the side of the road so you drive five miles down the road and then come back and pick him up. That's a joke. Yeah. The stuff where, like, you're literally, like, call your wife and tell her that you've been cheating on her with strippers, that's not a rib. <laughs> now, the funniest one of all time is when they used Jim Cornette's car, rental car, and smashed it for the backstage fight. Like, no, you shouldn't have done that, but that was really funny. Also, they had every intention of, like, replacing the car yeah. and buying him a totally... Like, when Vince does ribs, it's funny, because he's just like, fuck it, I'll just buy you a new car, buy who cares? Buy Cadillac, yeah. Um, the Bulldogs stick around for a little bit after that. I think they're at Survivor Series, but they end up leaving the company. Dynamite would always claim it wasn't because of that, but I think he couldn't handle like. He really had little man syndrome, and I think he could just not handle the fact that he got knocked out in front of everybody. It really ruins his, like, mystique. Destroys his life, I feel like. Well, also, like, his body's already kind of starting yeah. to break down. He was the original uh, your body falls apart when you're seeking out perfection in wrestling. Yeah. But also just, like, and also he just, he, the matches he wants to be having, there's no one on earth he can have them with. Like, Not imagine, in this company. Imagine Brian Danielson existed in a vacuum in a world where no yeah. one else on earth wrestled like that. That's where dynamite. Every, where everybody on the roster is drunk and pilled up and on steroids and their bodies are broken down because the schedule is so brutal and they're bumping in this horrible rock hard ring. And he's like going around trying to be like, hey, guys, you want to wrestle a 20 minute Matt classic today? And everyone's like, shut the fuck up, little man. We're going to do two bumps. That's it. So the Rougeos have turned heel. They're not managed by Jimmy Hart yet. 
they don't have, sadly, they don't have the All-American Boys theme yet, but they do have the Little American Flags, and they're introduced as being from Montreal, Canada, but soon to relocate to the United States. This is such a great gimmick. I love the Rougeos. I think they're incredible. There's somebody I didn't like. I feel like 10 years ago I didn't like them, but now I find so much humor in them. And they can wrestle. Like, I feel like Jacques Rougeau is one of those, like, lost, like, we should think so much better of him than we do. And I don't know why we don't, really. He does have sort of, like... legendary dickhead. He has, like, a Jeff Jarrett quality to him, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) True Carney. Big draw in Montreal, though. Genuinely successful everywhere he went. Got Hulk Hogan to put him over in Montreal. Which is pretty big, guys. You know he greased the Hulkster for that. Oh, of course. Before he can forever say he did it. This is a solid match. It went a lot longer than I wanted it to. They go 20 minutes to the time limit. They do a tag Broadway. Why? Why are we doing that? The time limit draw is just kind of your typical opening match for a wrestling show in the 80s. The idea is we're going to start with something long and not very serious because people are still finding their seats at the beginning of the show. And I will say, when you look into the crowd here, I do feel like you still do see a lot of people coming through the aisles to their seats. What I would argue is that, like, which match on this card, I guess it's Rude versus Junkyard, where they're just like, all right, we're actually putting on a match that people would really want to see for real. Yeah. Uh, did you notice Dynamite has his trunks on backwards? He does, yes. That's Cut very strange. Jack in front. They're supposed to be in the back. Maybe. He may have been so pilled up he just put them on backwards. <laughs> I. It drives me crazy when they don't do the time limit countdown. AEW is guilty of this now as the only promotion that does time limit draws. I don't understand how you don't have the announcer counting down how much time is left. You have screens everywhere. Put a fucking clock up. Like, AEW has no excuse. Back then, like, the only thing you can do is have the timekeeper say it. And the funny thing about that is, he can just make it up. It doesn't actually have to be 20 minutes, because who the huh. fuck knows that it's 20 minutes? Just yeah. Most of these time limit draws, they just, they just time it so, that, um, you know, right when they're covering to get the three count, the bell rings. Right. In this case, I thought it was a DQ, because literally, like, uh, the match is about to end, and then suddenly the bell rings, and I'm like, huh, I must have missed something. Nope, time limit. All right. Pretty good match. Yeah. It's fine. There's nothing special about it. They recap Beefcake being attacked by Ron Bass. Uh, Bass choked him with his whip and dragged him all around the ring. That was pretty brutal. He took the spur off his shoe yeah. and hard weight bladed him. What the yeah. hell? And I love how they censored it on the pay-per-view because it made it look so obscene. The best part is a bunch of guys run in to save Beefcake, but we can't tell who any of yeah. them are because they got this giant X in the middle of the screen. <laughs> and then we get Bad News Brown versus Ken Patera. <laughs> you know what? We've made a lot of jokes on this podcast about people with bad looks, your Christians or your Sami Zayn circa 2018. Ken with his brown hair. Kid Patera has the single shittiest look any wrestler has ever had. He's not a particularly good looking man. He has a giant cascading wave of brown hair that looks like a wig. Like it looks impossible that that's his real hair. He's wearing like the tightest 
ass-huggingest singlet known to man. By this point, he's gotten old, and he's literally done prison time. So he did jail time for an incident where him and Masa Saito fought a bunch of cops after... So... Him and Saito go to McDonald's late at night in Waukesha, Wisconsin. As you and do. the Mc, the McDonald's is closed, but the staff are still in there, which this literally happened to me the other week. I, you know, was late, went to Wendy's, wanted to get some food. Oh, they were closed, had to go through the drive through. I did not, unlike Ken Patera, pick up a thirty pound boulder and threw it throw it through the window. Okay, so Patera maintained that they yes. weren't closed and that they just refused to let wrestlers in because they were scared of them. And he kept trying to be like, no, it's it's cool. We're good. We'll go through the drive through. We yeah. don't even mind. But they didn't have a car, so they wouldn't let them go through the drive through. And so, like, he was finally like they said no so many times that, you know, that like big, like ornamental rock that they have <laughs> in like every flower okay. bed in the country. To he just picked this day. He still maintains he didn't throw the boulder. That there was some other kid there, some 18-year-old kid who threw the boulder. I just watched an episode of Tales of the Territories about the AWA, where he was on the panel, and he talked about this. And everybody on the panel was making fun of him, and he got really upset about it. Everybody's like, oh yeah, some skinny 18-year-old kid threw the boulder through the window. Not you, the strongest man in the world. The funniest part is it probably was some skinny 18-year-old kid who just wanted some cheeseburgers. And, like, Kim Patera's like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, don't worry. They definitely won't blame you, the strongest man in the world, for throwing this giant boulder through the window. It's and like, then there's he didn't go to, he didn't go to prison because he broke the window. Yeah, he okay, went to here, prison because he fought all the cops when they showed up to the hotel to arrest him. Here's the best part. So it's not just him. Him and Masa Saito, who does not speak English, are together at the hotel – Masa Saito was just stay, sit, sitting in the car while Patera went on his throwing boulders rampage. There's cops show up. Masa Saito, who conceivably doesn't really understand the situation, doesn't know what the fuck's going on, sight unseen, starts fist fighting cops in the lobby of this hotel with Ken Patera. Yep. This sounds like it was World War Three. Like, this was the riot of the century. They're just fighting the entire Waukesha police force. And I think they won. Yeah, here's the thing. No, I, I guess none of them had guns, but like, according to various accounts, there were between five and twenty cops, and Masa Saito and Kim Patera whooped their fucking asses, so they had to bring the SWAT team back. <laughs> At which point they finally surrendered. I don't remember how much jail time Patera did for this, but it was a while. What happened with Saito? Did he just get deported? Saito was given a choice. You can either be deported or do three years in prison. He took the prison time. What? Why yes. did he just go back to Japan? Because he wanted to stay in America for the brief time. But here's the thing. He said he stayed in, in prison because he did the crime and was proud of it. He went to prison. He was apparently like one of the most respected prisoners in the whole prison. He was like the scariest guy in there. But and when he came out, he got a mega push against Anoki because he was the most dangerous man alive. So Patera was a big star in the late 70s, early 80s. Like he had Lion Madison Square Garden against Bob Backlund. He was one of the strongest men in the world back in the day. Competed in the 72 Olympics as a power lifter. According to Wikipedia... 
still the only American ever to clean and press 500 pounds. That's fucking crazy. <laughs> think how hard it is. How, think about how hard it would be to press. I mean, obviously, I can't lift 500 pounds, period. To clean 500 pounds and then lift it up over your head is insane. That takes so many different muscle groups. It's just a shame that he looks like such a fucking dork. <laughs> Here he does. I, he looked cool back in the day with his bleach blonde hair. He sorted. It, it wasn't even really great back then, though. Like Trying. For some reason, none of these strongmen actually look cool. Like, Mark Henry eventually did, That's but when he was thing. a strongman, he looked like a dork. Same thing with Dino Bravo. He doesn't actually look impressive. He, I mean, Same thing big, with, uh, but not... Yeah, Doug Furness was the same yeah. way. Like, these people don't look cool because that's not their job. No, it's functional strength, not yeah. show muscles. Uh, Bad News Brown is, of course, also an Olympian. He won a bronze medal in judo at the Montreal Games in 1976 after suing to get, like, USA judo integrated. Yeah, how, funnily enough, what there are some people, I, I, I read a book that had him in it. And literally, he's considered one of the best judo fighters in our country's history. Yeah. It's crazy. You know who else is considered one of the best judo fighters in our country's history? Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey, baby. Yeah. She also, she got the silver at the Olympics then. Yeah, I think so. And it sent her into a depressed spiral. Even though that's really good, and I, I don't know. think anyone else has come that close ever in our country's history. Judo, not really America's sport. No, it's every, it's literally the sport of like five countries and their only sport. You're not going to compete. Awful match. But, but oh, God. so washed up. <laughs> this was so bad. Here's the, here's this the best like, part. This fighting in slow motion. Bad News Brown has a finisher called the Ghetto the Blaster. The Ghetto Blaster. Which has also been called the Kiss That Don't Miss. Which is a shame, because he missed it. It's an enziguri to the back of the head. But he can't jump that high anymore, guys. Oh, he's a bit, man. He's got the biggest pot belly at this point. He's kicking dudes square in the butt cheeks with this thing. Dude was hitting that room service hard every night. Getting that Him and Junkyard house. Dog were, like, going crazy on the crab legs, junk, man. Junk food dog. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Brown wins with an Insiguri in five minutes. <laughs> Just wretched. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely awful. Uh, mean Gene interviews Savage, Hogan, and Elizabeth. They talk about Elizabeth being their secret weapon tonight. It's not a secret when you tell the whole world. Yep. Hulkster was just lecturing Savage about how he should have known his phones were tapped. It would have been funny if it, it turned out that this was not the plan at all, and they were just throwing them off by suggesting that it was. That would have made more sense. Next up, we've got Rick Rude versus the Junkyard Dog. Rude out first. He debuted in late 87, and he's really starting to get over. They would do a deal with him where he'd pick a woman out of the crowd and make out with her, and she would faint. I love that. This Rick Rude. And what a stud. We've covered Rick Rude a bunch of times. I've never, to this day, like, we've seen thousands of bodies in wrestling, and everyone has a great body in wrestling because it's wrestling. I've never seen anyone take a robe off and it be like, what? Those abs are, are you serious? And, like, the airbrushing of people's faces on his dick. Like, it, it, 
I've never seen a body this good on a human being ever. Is he just the perfect 80s pro wrestler? Yes. Him or Magnum T, I think he's the perfect heel and Magnum's the perfect baby. Well, that's the thing. Isn't Rude versus Magnum like the perfect match? I mean, just Rick Rude might be the handsomest man possible circa 1988. Yeah, I think so. It's it's funny how this changes over the years, but 1988, a muscular dude with with a long mullet and a mustache is perfect. And he's not like gross bodybuilder muscular like Hogan is. Like Slim he's like muscles. sleek but like jacked. Like yeah. Take that robe off and do that dance. I love the pre-match promo where he tells the fat out of shape New York nitwits to shut their mouths and watch what a real man looks like. The best part is that they constantly pan to like women in the crowd who are shoot taking pictures they and freaking want out. That. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know how much their husbands hate him. Let's be clear. There's not another attractive man on this whole show. So like realistically, I, really I mean, yeah. if you look at this card up and down, it's a lot That's of gross looking dudes. Right. I think you could say Brett. That's fair. Brett, kind of, Brett does kind of look like a buzzard, though. Then this really isn't his era, you know? Uh, Rude reveals he's got a new ID airbrushed on his tights. But he's also got a secret. Yeah. JYD out to a nice reaction. He comes out to Grab Them Cakes, his song from the Pile Driver album. God, that's so good. Grab Them Cakes. Uh, he's gone not too long after this. Uh, JYD, he, he jumps over to Crockett thinking he's going to make big money, but unfortunately by the time he gets there, the good times are over. Yep. Uh, to show how much age has changed in wrestling, JYD is only 35 here. How washed does he look? That's the wildest thing. JYD was all the way washed at 30. Like, I I don't... It was just guys did not take care of them. Like, even though the bumps were so much less, they didn't do any of the other stuff that guys do right today. Today, guys eat way better. They train way harder. They don't do drugs. They don't drink heavily. But, yeah. But they're also, like, not on the road literally 24 hours a day for years on end. Road schedule is a lot less brutal today. Yeah. Uh, not a great match. Rude works a very long chin lock. Eventually, he goes up to the top to do a fist drop, and he yanks down his tights to reveal he's got the Cheryl Roberts tights on. Which, it must be really awkward for him to do the, the like, fist drop with his pants halfway yeah. down. And then Jake Roberts just materializes out of the crowd and murders him. <laughs> Beats the hell out of him. Like the week after this, Jake warns Rude that if he ever wears those tights again, he will rip them off. Of course, Rude proceeds to, and Jake rips his tights off. Yep. Uh, He did have a pair of flesh colored underwear underneath, but it looks like he was naked. Yeah. Uh, DQ here. Love this angle. I, I do wish we had just gotten a Jake versus Rude match here, and it can go to a DQ. I don't know that we know. Or, you know what? Just have Rude get beat. The world would have survived. 
There's really nothing wrong with that. I and mean, he's a heel. Like, let him get beat. He it's fine. Just come back and say, sure, you may have been on top of me, but I'm going to be on top of your wife soon. Boom. That's all you need. And you can get three more months out of this. We go backstage for Mean Gene to interview the Honky Tonk Man. He issues an open challenge for the IC title tonight. Gene says there's rumors he's got a formidable opponent tonight. And Honky cuts him off saying he doesn't want to know who it is. Okay, so this is actually kind of weird. Because he says sort of that he knows who it is, but he doesn't want to tell the people. But then he's also like, and I don't want to know who it is. I can't tell if he knows or not. Honky Tonk Man was uh, engaging in some recreational activities, I think, around this time. I think that's fair to say. He does seem a little excitable. Goddamn. I love the Honky Tonk Man. This next segment... Oh, not not, it's not there one. yet. No, you mean the Powers of Pain versus the Bolsheviks? Can I tell you a secret about this match? Um, the the Powers of Pain fucking rule. Yeah, this is the thing. these are the Road Warriors. That's the thing. When they came out, I was like, oh man, I didn't know the Road Warriors were here. Wait, is that Road Warrior Samoan? <laughs> and I was like, oh, wait a minute. Flagrant Road Warrior ripoffs. They've got the same gear. They've got the same face paint. They've got the same haircuts. But it's phenomenal how much they look like the Road Warriors. And they do all the stuff. Um, So we came back from the interview and the Bolsheviks were in the ring with Slick. Nikolai Volkov got to sing the Soviet National Anthem, but they're interrupted by the Powers of Pain. Powers of Pain look cool as shit, beat the fuck out of the Bolsheviks, (laughs) and it's great. How weird is it that they have Baron Von Raschke as their manager as a baby face? Okay, they have Baron Von Raschke, but he's not doing the hand thing. He's got his face painted like Sting, but he keeps it under the hood the whole time so you never see his face. What a weird idea. And the baby faces, which is fine because they're going for their version of the road. I mean, they're going for their version of the road warriors to feud with demolition. Let me just be clear about this. Like I, I know that I'm, it was inevitable that I was going to say this and we'll talk more about it I when know. they come along. I queued it right up for you, but demolition fucking sucks. They're the worst team ever. Powers they look of pain are way better. The powers of pain are exactly what demolition was supposed to be, which is a bargain brand road warriors. If they had come in, six months earlier and they had gotten the rick derringer music that's yeah. the team of the 80s if these guys are the ones who like win for like a year straight and shit they like yes giant baby faces like demolition did these guys are just brutal i i don't i know they're limited which is obvious that's the demolition aren't good wrestlers either that's the thing. It seems, feels like there's like this idea that Demolition were good wrestlers, and they absolutely were not. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Powers get the win in five minutes after Power Slam and a diving head, but actually no problem with this. This was a solid enhancement match. I thought it was great. I loved every second of it. We cut away. We come back. Brother Love comes out. Uh... <laughs> This segment takes 500 years. <laughs> His guest is Jim Duggan. The the way the air comes out of the arena when he says Jim Duggan. Because <laughs> clearly he's they're like... Rick fucking Flair. 
can you imagine Rick if this is Flair Ric Flair? Into the WWF here, and Arn and Tully are about to come in too. You can do the whole like give them Kurt Hennig, and you've got the Four Horsemen. God, the Four Horsemen versus Hogan and Savage, like that's killer. The like, man, the matches he could have had with Hogan and Savage here. I mean, they had some pretty damn good matches four years after this. Imagine Flair. Basically, I mean, 88-89 is about as good as Flair ever was. This is pretty much his peak. Hogan versus Flair in 88 is literally the biggest match I think that you could ever possibly put on. Ever? Before Flair has lost all his confidence, before he's had to cut his hair and had his mind fucked with by Jim Hurd. This is just like... And Hogan, 80s Hogan, 88 Hogan is the perfect Ric Flair opponent. Yeah. He's all power, no brains. And that's exactly what you want. But he can actually mix it up way more than like the Lugers of the world can. Yeah. Now, Flair just ultimately didn't want to leave Crockett. I mean, he was on a nice guaranteed contract in Crockett. He was the top star. He also had a lot of influence on the booking. Just didn't want to give that up for the uncertainty of the WWF. The problem with that, though, is that even then the holes were, like, shining through in Crockett. Because yeah. they're going to sell, like, next year. Right at, right at, oh, it's right, no, it's within, it's a couple months after this. They're, that's why he's thinking of leaving, because money's tight and he's not sure he's actually going to get paid. But then Turner buys the company and money is no longer a concern. But still, yeah. it's a, it's definitely a what if, but he should have done no. I mean, it was pretty cool. I mean, it was a real possibility. Like, it, and you can always go back is the thing. Like, if if it turns out WCW's in good shape, great. Go on back. But <sighs> this segment goes way longer than it has any reason to. Eventually, Hacksaw hits Brother Love in the ass with his two by four and Brother Love runs away. Yeah. Can you tell me what the purpose of the segment was in kayfabe? Like, what... What was what are we trying to communicate here? I don't know. Me neither. Yeah. Next up, Intercontinental title. Honky Tonk Man defends against a mystery opponent. Honky Tonk Man comes out somehow more smug and smarmy than ever. This is so great. He is so incredible. He's doing his dance, he's got his guitar says, give me somebody out here to wrestle. I don't care who it is. He's been champion for so long that he's finally just completely forgotten that he's not invulnerable. 64 weeks he's been the Intercontinental Champion. And maybe he thought it was forever. But then there's like a full 30 seconds of silence to the point yeah. where they're like, what's going on? And somebody then, coming out? And the crowd explodes blows when they realize this is the warrior coming out so up to this point what had warrior been doing like it had he been just doing job he matches wrestled or? hercules at wrestlemania and he beat him and then i think after wrestlemania he had been working with hercules all right because he hasn't really done much but yeah. like obviously the fans are way into him he was in the royal rumble he had done he had had a lot of tv time he debuted like fall 87 so he's had a so- almost a year at this point of mostly squash matches. I mean, all squashes on TV and then more competitive matches on the house shows and pay-per-view. But still, even with that, do you think that they were surprised by the reaction here? 
Like, probably. And it's probably unfortunate that he gets such a good reaction because it seems like here's where Vince is like, oh, and they're he's like, the guy. strap him up, yeah. And that is a horrible decision. <laughs> uh, Warrior runs to the ring. He hits the clotheslines. He hits, as Meltzer termed it, the worst shoulder block in history. It's really not that bad of a shoulder block, to be honest. Um, Here's here's the problem. He's out of position for every move that he does, (laughs) and he only does four things. (laughs) Honky Tonk Man apparently refused to take the press slam because Warrior would just grab guys by the throat and their dick and balls when he would press slam somebody. That's my favorite part is he would hoist them up and you're supposed to grab them by like their inner thigh taint area and by like their chest bone. But instead he would just grab you by the throat and by your whole dick and just lift you into (laughs) the air. (laughs) To the point where Rick Rude showed it. Rick, he did it to Rick Rude once. Rick Rude grabbed him backstage like, Hey, I'm going to show you how to do this move. Rick Rude could have whooped this guy's ass if he wanted to. Oh, God, to. Yes. It was very nice of Rick Rude to not just beat him up. And it's so funny, too. It's just like, I, I can't imagine that anybody ever really, other than that, ever tried to help him. Like, it's not not like he was a particularly popular guy. I remember who trained him, but I'm sure it was. I don't think he actually got a lot of training. I think it was one of those Buzz Sawyer ripoff deals. Oh, I'm sure it was. Because I think he and Sting were trained by the same guy. And Sting has always said, like, he was didn't a get trained man. shit. Yeah. Yeah. Man, <laughs> I've been retweeting lately. Anytime I come across a job match from the 80s where one of the guys is clearly untrained, I have to retweet it. It's a rule. It's so funny. Because they're always just, like, the fattest guy in town who's just like, oh, I'm a badass. Did you see the one of the dude who just wouldn't sell for Sid? Yes. And then Sid finally gets like, well, okay. And then he just kills that man. Power bombs the shit out of him. And the dude still kicks out because Sid must have given him the eggy. Yeah. Sid was just like, hey, buddy, kick out. No one will ever expect it. <laughs> Squeezed his thigh. Anyway, Warrior hits the splash and gets the pin in 30 seconds. To me, this is just like the quintessential chicken shit heel getting his comeuppance. I think this should happen way more often. Yes, a year that he spends with the title. And it's so amazing that at the end, he just gets smashed. Like, like that's perfect. perfect. But it doesn't hurt Honky. A, it happened on pay-per-view where barely anybody saw it. B, he can just say, this wasn't fair. I didn't know who my opponent was going to be. I didn't get to warm up. I didn't even get to take my ring jacket off. Like, I got screwed by the referee, and I'm still the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. And he'll just get more heat from it. Realistically, this is how, like, Roman should probably lose the belt, too. I can imagine... I don't know who has the credibility to do this, but the idea that somebody just demolishes him would be amazing. My headcanon is that this is like Braun Breaker. Braun Breaker would be perfect, actually. Yeah, He comes up in like six months and like Roman just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm busy with this other bloodline shit. And then he gets in a title match with Braun on like SmackDown. And 30 seconds, spear, jackhammer, you're done. I mean, the funny thing is the other time... They did this was Goldberg and Brock, and it ended up being huge. It was incredible. Yeah. I know that's the old school psychology is if you're going to get beat, get beat fast. I feel like I've never really heard anybody explain it, though. 
Because everyone wants to have a 30-minute six-star classic, baby. <laughs> I think it's just like, if you get beat fast, it seems like a fluke. Yeah. And then you can come back. Like, And also, you didn't actually give the people the match that they paid for. You still gave them something awesome, so they don't mind that they didn't get it. But then you can come back to it, because you still have that match that you could have had, right? Man, can you imagine if Hogan and Goldberg had been like this at the Georgia Dome? Should have been. Yeah, should have been 30 seconds. Because then Hogan can just be like, what the fuck? No, give me my match back. Um, I believe there was intermission after this, but it's thankfully edited out on Peacock. Just a lot of fucking filler. That means there's been 30 seconds of wrestling in the last 35 minutes. <laughs> Heenan jumps into the announce booth. He says Andre is backstage reading the Wall Street Journal. DiBiase is counting his money. And Virgil is standing there enjoying it. And the Mega Powers have barricaded themselves in their locker room for protection. Smart. And then we have Don Morocco versus Dino Bravo in a match made in hell. I saw Dino Bravo walk Uh, out to the ring and I immediately went and started making dinner. Did not watch a second of this match. Five minutes. Awful. Slow motion. Sluggish. Terrible. Terrible. Bravo gets the win in five minutes with a sidewalk slam. Unwatchable. Un, just, just absolute garbage. Like, the matches people think are bad today are ten times better than this match. Like, literally, like, that match that was, like, Jackie Gaeta and Chris Nowinski versus Trish and JBL is, like, a master class compared to this. Because at least they're trying to do things. No one here has any idea of doing anything but the bare fucking minimum. We got their money, brother. Don't be a mark. And even by that standard, they're still going in slow motion. Sean Mooney then interviews Jesse. He admits to taking money from DiBiase, but says he'll be unbiased tonight. The idea that Jesse's just like, yeah, give me all the money you got. I don't give a shit, though. I'm just going to do what I do. Next up for the tag titles, we've got Demolition against the Hart Foundation. Demolition in the midst of their record-setting tag team title run. Listen. <laughs> I've played this music before. We don't really need... we got a, a couple of episodes in this season left to do. I don't need to shoot all my shots here. Demolition come out in their stupid little masks and their stupid little underwear with the little spikes on it, but they look like thumbtacks coming through a pair of Hanes. It is the most nightmarishly horrible look. Worst leather daddies ever. They also have, like, the really gross kind of body hair where it's just like, man, no one ever told these guys about shaving anything. Not that you have to do that, but everyone else on this show is, so they just look kind of gross. I don't know, man. Not muscular. They're puffy. They just look like somebody's dad in BDSM gear. There's no other way to put it. Especially Axe with that stupid haircut. I just can't get past it. They look fucking stupid. Meanwhile, I think the hearts look awesome. I can't understand why the hearts don't just face the powers of pain at WrestleMania. Like, I, I understand that it's demolition losing to versions of themselves, but, like, I don't... No, I would be done with this. Um, you know, the hearts dominate for a while. Brett gets to shine, but then he misses a charge into the corner. He gets worked over by Axe and Smash. 
He manages to hit a clothesline. He tags in Nightheart, but the ref doesn't see it. Brett hits a boot and manages to tag in Nightheart. Nightheart slams both guys. He hits a power slam, but Smash kicks out at two. Brett tags in. He goes for a pile driver, but Fuji distracts the ref. Axe grabs Jimmy Hart's megaphone and smashes Brett in the back of the head with it, and Demolition gets the pin to retain. Best match of the night. God, it's depressing that you just said that, but yeah. yeah. Uh, Bret Hart was Mr. SummerSlam. He really was. Next up, we've got the Big Boss Man against Coco Beware. My God, do I love the Big Boss Man. Big Boss Man is awesome. He looks awesome here and all his, like, cop shit. Oh, with his... He's so big. Dude is at least 6'5", and... 350. Does it seem weird that he never wore an undershirt under his police shirt? Because every so often his gut would <laughs> just like a poke stripper. out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, much too attractive to be a real police officer. I realized at this match during the show that, like, they book these pay-per-views, these early ones, like their house shows. Oh, yeah. They just, just a house show that they asked people that, like, was available on broadcast. Yeah, they just throw a bunch of guys out there to be like, and the big boss man is in action tonight. I mean, I don't mind. Boss man, his only debuted a few weeks before this, so they're trying to get him exposure. So here he's going to get to get a dominant win over Coco, who at least, you know, Coco gets to beat the jobbers on TV. Coco's a jobber to the stars. Yeah. I don't have a problem with it. I just thought that it was interesting once I finally realized that that's what was happening. Because there are, mul- there are I think, five matches on the show that go between 5 minutes and 28 seconds and 6 minutes and 33 seconds. Yes. That is the exact length of time for, like, a house card. Like, all right, here's a star. Hooray! Now yeah. we're going to go I mean, home. So, I mean, the basically enhancement matches for Bossman, Bravo, Powers of Pain... Honestly, the the Warrior was a squash. Yeah, Bad News Brown. Yeah, those are all really just enhancement matches. I would have thought that the next one would be two, but it goes ten minutes for some reason. (laughs) Yeah. Bossman got the win here in five minutes with the sidewalk slam, and then he hits Coco with his nightstick after the match. Boo, hiss. Moody interviews the Warrior. He yells a lot. The best part about this segment is so it starts... All the baby faces are in the locker room celebrating with Warrior. <laughs> it goes close like in. Shit. It goes close in on the Warrior as he starts ranting like, "This is a great title win. I'm going to go back to Parts Unknown. Anyone who wants to challenge me can come to Parts Unknown." And like you see, Junkyard Dog just kind of like, like give him side eye and walk away. And when they zoom back out, everyone's gone. <laughs> everyone. Everyone's oh, yeah. Like, this guy's fucking weird. I'm out. All, the, all my friends are here, too. They're just out of the frame. <laughs> <laughs> and then Jake Roberts versus Hercules. Um, no issue here, but this ends up going 10 minutes because they know Jake can deliver a good match. Yep. He didn't manage Hercules, but he doesn't bother to come out to manage him here. This is the uh, end of that. Hercules is about to turn face and get sold to Ted DiBiase. Of course. Jake, I always love the little touches Jake comes up with with in his matches. Like here, he gets Hercules in a headlock. Hercules back suplexes him here, but Jake manages to hold on to the headlock. 
Jake is just so... He's just kind of a dumpy man who doesn't yeah. look particularly impressive. No, he's enormous. He's so tall. Yeah, you forget about that. But yeah, he's like 6'4". Yeah. And like, he can't do much. But just every fucking thing he does... Makes everything count. Yeah, everything matters. Everything means something. I mean, his whole offense, he's got the DDT, the jabs, the short arm clothesline, and that's about it. But everything he does is cool. He just and finds every, ways to make everything he does seem cool. Every single thing he does is leading to the DDT. There yeah. is no wasted motion. The first opportunity he thinks he can hit it, he's going to try to hit it every single time. Uh, at the end of the match, Hercules goes for a power slam. Jake slips out and DDTs him for the pin after 10 minutes. It's one of the better matches on the show. Yeah. And Jake brings out Damien after the match. That's sick pervert. What a pervert. And then we get a really long recap video. They show every single angle and interview that led to this in full. It takes forever and doesn't look very good. They just they don't have the editing capability that they have, you know, in the years after this. There's also just not that much footage. Like there's just not no, that much. There was to there do. wasn't a ton. They, you know, they did they did the angle where Savage got beat up. Then Savage did the promo where he announced Hogan would be his partner. I mean, they had there was a decent number of stuff here, but it wasn't a lot of really electric stuff. There there was only the one physical angle. They're only gonna like get to like the right amount of stuff like right about wrestlemania like that that's when they finally have enough (sighs) all right main event time mega powers versus mega bucks jesse comes out first in his do-rag and his sparkly jacket and the gear he would wear to announce what a legend then dibiase and andre come out along with heenan and virgil dibiase doesn't have music yet that seems weird, right? Like I, it, I know the, the bigger money, stars. Obviously, money, money, money comes much later, but there's some heels who still don't have music. Pretty much all the baby face. If you're anything as a baby face, you have music by this point. Oh, you still have to. Uh, there's still some heels who don't. I guess it's more rude has music. I'm trying to think of who, what other heels. Somebody, oh, uh, somebody else on this show didn't. I just can't remember who, but yeah. I don't think Hercules did yet. Yeah. Yeah. Bad, bad News Brown never did. He Then that's right. He shouldn't have music. It is funny, too, because they WWE has trained me so much to be like, oh, this guy's already in the ring when the segment starts and he gets no entrance. Well, he's doing the job. Nope. Bad News Brown just does that. <laughs> and then he chops I mean, people out. Frequently, they wouldn't give the heels an entrance because they don't have music. That's just funny, though. It's just like, oh, man, yeah. bad news doing the job. Nope. Whooping ass nope. in five Whoop minutes. Ass. Yeah. Uh, Hogan and Savage come down to Savage's music along with Elizabeth. Savage has yellow and red trunks. Elizabeth has a yellow dress. Hogan even has mega powers on, in the, on the back of his trunks. The only time I ever remember him having any writing on his trunks. This is the only night where he's actually committed to the idea. Yeah. 
DiBiase gets tuned up for the first couple minutes of the match until Hogan gets caught in the heel corner and he gets choked by Andre. Uh, the heels were keyed on Hogan for a while. Andre, you can tell, is really starting to break down physically at this point. He is really limited. He's the got back, nothing left. His back is absolutely killing him, you can tell. he has to. He's, it's getting to the point where he has to hold the ropes to stand up. <sighs> Poor Andre. Um, Hogan eventually manages to tag in Savage. Savage comes in hot, but Andre cuts him off. The Giant is just overpowering. Yep. And I would have loved Andre versus Savage for the title here. It seems... And especially at this point, like, Andre can lose. And, like, that's something that literally yeah, only they, Hogan they, has done. They'd probably beat him by count out to protect him. But still, Savage just keeping the title would be an achievement there. Yeah. Though, again, that's a really interesting idea to do that. Because that's uh, literally something that only Hogan has ever done. But Hogan can't beat Hogan in quite the same way. Or he needs Hogan's help to beat him. Yeah. Uh. DiBiase misses his elbow drop off the second rope and Savages manages to make the tag to Hogan. Hogan drops Andre with a clothesline. Savage goes for the flying elbow, but Andre gets his boot up. Hogan puts DiBiase in the million dollar dream, but Andre manages to break it up. Yep. Hogan breaking out the million dollar dream. Didn't think we would see that. At this point, as all looks lost for our heroes, Elizabeth gets up on the apron and takes off her skirt to reveal the largest pair of red underwear you have ever seen. It's just underwear. It's just a a regular old pair of underwear. The match comes to a halt as everyone in the arena is staring at Elizabeth. And, like, they stare for so long. It's clear... We need to put this in proper perspective, I guess. But for, like, WWE, this is the only sexuality they've ever presented at this point. Oh, yeah. And especially Elizabeth has never done anything remotely sexy. So, like, they know that there are dudes out there who are just, like, blue-balling it hard for Elizabeth. And, like, it just is the case. So, like, they give this moment, like, two uncontested minutes as she just stands there. Hogan and, like, and Savage. <laughs> the guys don't sell it. Like, the, the heels are like, uh. Andre doesn't even look at her. Oh. Hogan and Savage are standing on the floor together, and they do their Mega Powers handshake. It's like, yeah, look at that ass. That's our ass. Ours. She's our manager now. We share everything. Shouldn't that have become the pro- the whole thing is that they just become like a polyamorous couple and then it's just like that falls apart? <laughs> Reality and fiction. Uh, Hogan and Savage jump back in the ring. Savage hits the double axe handle on Andre. Hogan slams DiBiase. Savage hits him with the flying elbow. Hogan drops the big two, big leg. Ventura counts two, and then he hesitates to count three, and Savage forces his hand down for the pin. Yep. That was a fun match. I didn't hate it. 
this is a perfectly fine main event for this era, for being totally honest. Yeah. I I mean, I wish they had given us two singles matches here. I wish we had gotten either Hogan versus DiBiase and Savage versus Andre. That's probably the way to go. Or you do the final Hogan-Andre blow-off and Savage-DiBiase, but I'd probably have gone with uh, Savage against Andre feels like the draw. Savage having to defend the title against the Giant. Yep. Not how they booked back then, though. Nope, they they just genuinely don't care, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing on this show really... Do you think that they already know at this point... I mean, they obviously do, because they set up so vividly. In fact, let's paint a word picture of what happens after the match, because that's really what matters here, right? Yeah. So, after the match... Uh, they bring Elizabeth in to celebrate with Savage and Hogan, and they're all posing down and everything. And, like, Hogan, like, gives Liz a big hug and, like, lifts her up. Yeah. Too much. Yep. And then you see Savage be like, what the fuck was that about? And then yeah, Hogan's I just like... Couldn't. So Savage, yeah, he turns around and he sees this and he puts his arms out, which I initially took as, like, him being like, what the hell, man? But then it kind of seemed like that was just the pose he was doing, so I couldn't quite tell. Well, then it's just like Hogan just like, don't worry about it, man, don't worry about it. And then he's just like, it's cool. all right, all right, well, yeah, whatever. Like, it's not a big deal. I'm not going to get worked up about this. And then they go to put Liz up on Savage's shoulder for the iconic pose, yeah. right? And Hogan grabs a giant handful of that ass. He sure does. Like whole butt cheek in hand to lift her up, which Hogan Savage doesn't see. He was he was just steadying her. He thought Savage was gonna drop her. But like and so like but Savage doesn't see it because he has his back turned. Yeah. So Hogan puts her up on his shoulder, gives her the belt, and then he kind of like sneaks a glance at Elizabeth. And the best part is this storyline only exists because this is the one and only time a wrestler has ever watched the footage back from the show they were on. Because, of course, later we're going to find out that Savage is like, I saw you. I saw you looking at her, Hogan. But Hogan is 100% doing all of those things. This is really good storytelling. So much more subtlety than you usually get from wrestling. Just these little looks. Honestly, if you were just a fan watching at home, you probably wouldn't have even noticed any of this. Yeah. Yeah. It never would have occurred to you. The Hogan, the hugging her and picking her up is a little too much. Like, if a guy guy did that to your girlfriend, I feel like you'd be like, oh, that's weird. But then he could, like, they both come over and just like, hey, man, it's all good. And Hogan raises his hand like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. To be continued. Um, overall, not a good show. And I, like, I grade the, I don't grade this today. This would be a total abomination. I try to grade this stuff on a curve for the era. This is not even a good show for the era. This pales in comparison to, uh, I mean, that clash of the champions we talked about that Crockett put on. This is much weaker than any number of Saturday night's main events shows the WBF puts on in this era. This is not a good show even for the time. Nope. This is bad in a way that SummerSlam will classically become known as being <laughs> bad. This really this, sets the tone. These SummerSlam tropes of like weird announced teams, um, Big feuds not being on the show, some weird six-man tag matches. We didn't have any of those here, but the weird six-man tag matches will become a thing in the future years. Yep. Uh, Really, what are you even going to say? Like, it's just is 
this is they don't think that this is important. They certainly aren't looking like, all right, we'll look back on this in a couple of years and yeah. wish we had done more. They don't give a fuck. I don't even know if they I don't even know if they think this is going to be an annual thing at this point. Yep. It just it's more of an experiment. Like, how, how, how are we going to do if we do a pay-per-view late in the summer? And they probably wanted to fuck with Crockett by doing a pay-per-view right around the same time as the Great American Bash. Check and check. Yeah. Next time, uh, we'll have a show that I think will probably be better than this one. Uh, the Survivor Series 1988, Teams of Five Strive to Survive. Teams of five strive to survive. Who can Hogan, can the mega powers survive against the incredible force of um, uh, Ted DiBiase and uh, uh, the Twin Towers? And uh, I can't remember who else is in that match. A bunch of big dudes. Haku, I think. And, Probably. Uh, maybe, maybe Rick Rude. I don't think Rick Rude's actually in that match. Oh, maybe I think Red Rooster's in that match. Oh, God. <laughs> Terry fucking Taylor, his one and only pay-per-view main event. Fantastic. cock a doodle do. So, yeah, all that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.